international fans use names differently too i think because mm -hmm. sometimes they'll use real names instead of stage names but the idol themselves only uses their stage names yeah yeah because i think it's that way with onu shiny's onu where international fans sometimes will call him jinky i think he said that he prefers to be called onu yeah, I don't. I think I, I usually go with like with how the the artist themselves, what they say they like to be called. Mm. For example, I don't know, like um, DK from Seventeen. They've asked him before, like, what do you prefer, DK, Tokyum, or Songmin? And he said Tokyum. So like, it's Tokyum from now on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, even with Hoshi, like a lot of people call call him Sunyeong, but he calls himself Hoshi all the time, like it's Hoshi. Yeah. <laughs> if that's what he calls himself, then who exactly. are we, who are we to argue with him? Exactly. Yeah. Well, I don't know where you want to even start. This is such a big topic. Um, we can just dive in. I can start with the story from the the. the the treasure kit because it's a it's a fan a fan story so I think it's a good point to talk about just how fans think and behave because like I said um at the you haven't watched Treasure Box right no I haven't not yet so yeah um YG had four teams just like kind of how Win had two teams but they had four so like Team A the top trainees Team B the new trainees and Team C, the youngest trainees, they had kids as young as like 12, 13 years old there. And then they had Team J with the Japanese trainees. And then there was like this kid, his name is Haruto. He's very tall, very handsome. He is the, the face of treasure, the visual of treasure. And he's got a very deep voice. And he usually covers um, Tope's parts when they do the band covers. Have you seen the, the Still Life cover? Yes, yeah, I watched it yesterday. Yeah, actually. exactly. Yeah. It's oh, the kid that who does. Kid. Yeah, that one. And his mom, she's a huge VIP. So he says, like, my parents, they joined the Big Bang's official fan club in Japan. And there's a sequence, like, his whole family, it's him and his youngest, his younger sister and his parents, they went to see Sunni in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> you can see how this happened a long time ago, right? Yeah. And his mom cried at the entire concert. And then they met Sunni at the end. And his mom was so overwhelmed. So it goes to show, like, we, we often joke, like, his mom, she must feel like the happiest fan in the whole world. Imagine you have a kid <laughs> and your kid debuts in the company of the group that you loved so much. Um, group that you were, like, putting money into them, into your 30s, 40s, I think. That's really cute. And it reminds me of, um, there's so many Johnnies uh, in Japan who got their start that way where the moms are fans or the sister, the big sister is a fan. I think there's a number of debut idols who the sisters were fans of kinky kids <laughs> and so submitted their little brother's applications to be Johnny's. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna, when I have a kid I'm gonna send my kid's application to be part of NCT. <laughs> I'm gonna produce new NCT. <laughs> 
it's a fun thing. It's a fun thing. Yeah. Yeah, it can change. It can change your whole life. Before we started recording, I was eating with my family and my parents. They they were eating and they had the TV on. They were watching Stray Kids music videos. They love Stray Kids. And we were having an argument because I told them that like I really like Stray Kids, but they don't make like they don't crack my top seven best group. <laughs> and my parents, they were really like, what do you mean? But Stray Kids, they are awesome. Like, yeah, but like there are other groups. Like, but not even your top seven? Probably. <laughs> So yeah, K-pop really, really changed, not just like my becoming a fan, it was really meaningful in my life, but my my entire family jumping on the bandwagon with me and just coming to like it. My parents, they have a lot of fun with K-pop. It's, it's just a very, very funny thing to behold. It's definitely a fun form of entertainment. I don't think you can call it quite music or TV or... It's just everything. But um, before we really get started, did you have a song that you want to play for everybody? Uh, I think I really, really want us to listen to Treasures My Treasure today. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will put in Treasures My Treasure. <laughs> I wanna go back to the good times. Mm-hmm. No, I You know what's funny is I had that happen to me this week with Astro's um, Candy Sugar Pop.
Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, that's it's the same type of... Yeah, that's my... Yeah, Candy Sugar Pop is 100% my brand. I have been listening to it over and over and over again. It's so cute. The Astro is really a group that I really get why you like them so much. Because they really embody the idea of what idols, what we expect idols to be like. They're even like... I, I, I still prefer their earlier stuff. Mm. I really like Confession a lot. I love Confession so much. What a cute song. What a cute music video. But I think they grew well. Like Their concerts are still very good. Yeah, yeah. They're from their early starts with um, Baby is such a banger. I love Baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a very, very cute, very sweet song. Yeah. A music yeah. video like that, your name concept is, is cute, but it's very, very, very idle. It's, yeah, it's almost a little old fashioned. Um, one of my posts that still gets hits, which I'm happy about, is my post on Astro and how they're the last of the old time idol groups. I think one of the points that, so yeah, I think I can jump right into the conversation. Oh, well, maybe we should um, introduce introduce oh, you first, because what first. everyone, welcome to the Idolcast, um, <laughs> my show, <laughs> and I have a guest with me here today, um, who we've been friends online for a few years now, um, but we've never really talked. So this is, um, yeah, this is going to be fun. So would you like to introduce yourself? Of course. Hi, everyone. My name is Luisa. I am from Brazil. I'm 27 years old, and I've been a K-pop fan for a little over three years. But one of the reasons why I actually... I'm into K-pop research at the moment. I started very early, I think in a couple of ways, I could say that I became a fan and a researcher quite at the same time. But the reason, and we'll talk about this reason why I am not one of the K-pop scholars that I very much disagree with is because I met Kara and she was a great mentor. She really taught me so much about not j- about idol music in general. And yeah, all of our conversations, they've always been so meaningful, so, so good. And I've learned so much from you. So like, when I, whenever I, I'm telling people about K-pop, people ask me a lot, like, ah, oh, can you tell me a little bit about K-pop? And there's so much that I tell people that I actually learned from you. So it's very, very, very nice that we can have this conversation now. <laughs> You're so sweet. Thank you. Um, yeah, I. it's been very interesting interacting with um, sort of new fans who are new to idols and new to the idol world. There's also another friend of ours who was also very... Both of you, when I was still like trying to figure out what was going on, you pointed me to the right sources. And just for like, for for starters, I'm an architect actually, but right after I graduated, I had no plans of pursuing architecture whatsoever. But then I started to get increasingly interested in studying how people interacted with the idea of digital spaces. Um, And I used the the context of internet fandom a lot for that and especially bts fans back in 2019 right and the reason why i actually pursued this was because i had a bunch of conversations with people and countless articles that were written like about oh how did bts become so big how did bts get this big etc and the more i read these articles the more i realized they were missing something 
because I was on Twitter and I was interacting with fans, but I couldn't really quite put my finger on it. And I started to think about how fans engaged with this idea of like using Twitter as their place, as their dwelling place, let's put it like this. And I realized that just saying, oh, BTS got really big because they had amazing fans that did a lot for them is a very, 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 very overly simplistic way of putting it. And if you don't address the details, you're just missing a whole lot of stuff. And I started to try to dig deeper into all of this through like countless interviews and a lot of digging, a lot of digging on Twitter, on on blogs and other places. I ended up like retrieving. I don't think we've talked much about this. I have never mentioned this to a lot of people, but I retrieved like a series of events that actually led to to the wings come back like what things that happened between fans and with bts as well that led to that explosive comeback and what the wings come back ended up uh, bringing into the fandom and to the group and that was a great way just to for me to have like data actual data that shows how fan interactions on the internet end up impacting a group's life. Yeah, that is interesting. This is a part of the sort of BTS story that is often left out when people do write those overly simplistic articles and say, yeah, just, oh, they're active on social media. And very few people have even tried to put the work in to figure out exactly what it was that happened. Yeah. So back then, I was still trying to figure out what I wanted to get out of this. And a friend really encouraged me like, oh, you should submit a, an abstract to the BTS conference, <laughs> which I did. And it was accepted. And it was a lot of work, but I, I ended up going to the UK. And I presented, um, it was January 2020. So a bit over two years ago. I was very new to everything, but I was really lucky because nowadays I wouldn't, encourage anyone that had just started the way I had back then to simply like go for a conference the way I did. But in a way, I think that I'm still very proud of what I did back then because I, I, I've learned so much ever since, but my, the, the foundations of my knowledge, they were great. They were very solid. And I knew what I was talking about. And one of, like I said, one of the reasons why my foundation were solid was because I was pointed to the right sources from the get-go. It was really, it really made such a difference, um, which is something that I feel like is really lacking <laughs> nowadays. Good foundation. Yeah. And this is something we can dig into, but I think the big problem um, with sort of K-pop academia and BTS academia specifically um, is that they don't have those that good foundation of sources. And so you have papers that may not be all that sturdy being cited by other papers, and then those papers are cited. So you have all of these academics citing each other to create this body of knowledge that has no sort of basis in or grounding in, you know, sort of the the real life facts of, you know, the music industry and, um, you know, Korea and Korean culture and Korean history generally. So it's, it's sort of this parallel world. Because I'll read some of these papers that I see sort of linked on Twitter sometimes, and I just look at them. 
<laughs> like they're missives from another planet because what they talk about makes no sense. It's very strange. <laughs> challenge i think we have a very very big problem i remember in 2020 when we had the thing with um k-pop fans ruining trump's rally which was a major moment right a lot of people who are not specifically in fandom studies people who are maybe in social studies but not really looking at fandoms for example and i remember that there was a fandom studies scholar who was she was just very upset because she saw all of these articles that were being written by people who had nothing to do with fandom studies, people who had never dedicated a, like an ounce of their time to that topic, um, bringing into their perspectives and trying to act as if fandom studies wasn't a field that had been that's been around for like 30, 40 years or something. Um, so there, there is a body of knowledge, but one of the problems that you have, and it's not limited to K-pop, it happens in literally every other um, branch of, of fandom studies. You've got people coming in from other um, other fields, but then they fall in love with something, be it like K-pop or Star Wars or Marvel's cinematic universe. But these people, they're already scholars, right? So they already have like, they're qualified in their field. So they don't feel like they need to requalify themselves to talk about something new. So they just bring in their own body of knowledge and they erase the fact that other people have been talking about this because they really want to be a part of the conversation and that's one one of the the problems that you have like right now i would say for sure that the the image that i have i don't feel like i'm learning things that are drastically changing my perception anymore so i do feel like i have a solid general understanding of the industry and i would say that it took it's like a good solid two years and by two years what i mean is not like two years of being a fan two years of engaging in research in readings reading books learning korean so that i could engage with other sources um so it, it takes a lot of time and who's got that time and i think k-pop right now is especially with the pandemic because so many people were sort of trapped inside the house and online that you found um, a lot of people engaging with K-pop that may not have otherwise ever engaged with um, pop music or a music fandom or, um, you know, Asian idols or anything like this. And when those people are academics, I think you're exactly right. They come in thinking that they know what it is they're seeing and very excited about it, but they don't have the the grounding in in the necessary sources in the background. And so 
you come up with a lot of personal narratives sort of presented as um, academic research. There is also a fact, this is debatable, of course, but a lot of the time we could we could do a very solid analysis of um, I think you could do this because you, you're the kind of person who, who is willing to do that kind of thing on um, articles that are written by people who have just become infatuated, infatuated with pop and they're not quite sure why that happened and they're slightly embarrassed so they feel like they need to justify themselves so they write an extensive piece just to tell people that they're now k-pop fans and they would like to apologize for that but this is really different from what you think <laughs> like this is such this is such a major phenomenon and i think that there must be like I don't recall this, but you were you were a bit older than me back then. But like, if this sort of thing happened with Twilight, or I don't know. Yeah, I don't think it did. To, not with the academics. Um, I think you, there were the same kinds of fans attracted to um, Twilight as with BTS, but you didn't really you didn't have the Twilight Scholars Journal or it. It, I mean, there may have been one, but it wasn't such a big um, part of the fandom. It, for me, that is something very unusual about um, BTS specifically, that they've attracted all these sort of academics dedicated to the study of BTS specifically. And yeah, I don't, I mean, maybe with the sort of more male-dominated fandoms, like there were always the books like the philosophy of Star Wars or, um, you know, you would have, uh, I feel like you would, or maybe S Star Trek or something, or Lord of, Lord of the Rings, I think, uh -huh. you know, like more of an academic interest or study in that, and, and those sorts of fandoms, but I had never really, oh, uh, you know, maybe the Beatles. Oh, mm, right. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, it wasn't all that typical with these teen, or, you know, ostensibly uh, teen um, properties. Uh, this mm -hmm. feels this feels new to me, and it, it feels very similar to the sort of recent um, pushing of uh, young adult literature um, oh. into a more adult uh, sphere. Um, so books that may have been intended in, in past decades to have been read by 16-year-old girls, the same people who would have been expected to like a group like BTS, now it's, you know, 36-year-old women reading those books and 46-year-old women, you know, standing BTS. So, um, yeah, I wonder if, if part of that is what you're saying, the, uh, the apologetics of just these, you know, these teenage tastes with um, adult <laughs> women. <laughs> but there is one thing. I, I remember there was this one time when I, um, I've always been a fan and I think you can tell when you meet people who have always been fans of something, um, because even though even when they're new to something, they know the politics of fandom. And so I've always been a fan of, of multiple things since I was a, a little uh, child. And in many ways, being a fan formed my understanding of the world, which can be a good thing or a bad thing. So the point is that like usually when teenagers they get to, like their seven. 18 years old they kind of fall out of fandom right I didn't 
Uh, and now we're still here. <laughs> um, so I heard someone, this person was telling me that they had never felt the urge of being a fan, a real fan, like committed fan until they met BTS. So there's also that like a lot of new K-pop fans because a lot of the, a lot of these people, some they get into um, BTS and they stay there, but a lot of them start getting into I know, TXT and and hype and as well now and because of uh, the acquisition they also get into Seventeen and etc. So they actually end up like getting into the extended K-pop universe, not just BTS, but um, a lot of them are people that had never engaged with fandom before so i feel that they attribute that there must be something special about this because i there was no reason for me to to engage with anything before i met this thing so like what's special about this thing uh and i think that's a valid questioning like you should question yourself why this and not anything else but at the same time again it, it ties back to um, even though this is new to you, there are people that have been here for longer. Um, this has been going on for a while. Um, you should sit back and listen, even though you are overly qualified, even though you are a person who uh, who has like credentials and everything, you should still sit down and listen. And I don't see that happening very often. Mm. Yeah, and, and just going back to the credentials too, I... You know, I just feel like it's um, almost insulting in a way as somebody who studied music for so long and has put, you know, maybe 20 years of my life, 25 years of my life into understanding um, Asian pop music and Asian mass art that that these, you know, academics who may be proficient in, you know, um, art history or... Um, you know, sort of classical social studies or even, um, you know, uh, people that may have uh, a background in like Korean cultural studies, but not in um, sort of this mass art. It's just very insulting that they think they can come in and pass judgment or, you know, have these authoritative opinions on something that they're really not familiar with um, and have not actually put the time into learning about. Um, and, and that's where I get really frustrated because, you know, a lot of the times it's just when they're coming in from outside, um, especially sort of the Western academics with no background in Asia at all, um, they completely miss out on sort of the, the interconnectedness of the region as well as sort of the, the um, you know, the influences of uh, Japan, of China, mm-hmm. um, of Southeast Asia, um, and, and just sort of the character of Korea itself and its sort of status um, as sort of a very new power in terms of, um, you know, just that they, they had such a small economy for so long and then they've mm-hmm. grown so rapidly over such a short time um, and what may actually, you know, be happening. Um, it, it's just very, I don't know, I just find it very insulting that, that these academics think they can, can just come in and be authoritative on something that they really, really don't know anything about, but they think that they do because they think it's simple and they think it's just, um, you know, dancing 
people on mm-hmm. a, on, in and pop music that's yeah 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 i think the lack of background in music as well mm-hmm. um my, my my knowledge in music is limited even though i i did i i studied music for a while and um but it's still a very limited background so i just I try to understand exactly how much I am comfortable to to talk about like the music and the kind of opinions that I can give. Exactly because I know like you, you are a sound engineer. You know a lot more than I do, so you are the person <laughs> whose opinion like should I, I take into consideration? Like because I listen, of course, like um, the general public is not knowledgeable. But that doesn't mean that just because oh this is meant for mass consumption, that doesn't mean that we cannot listen to the opinions of specialists. Like, yeah, terrible things can be popular, but that doesn't make it any less terrible. So let's talk about it, right? Um, this is why this is good, why this isn't good, and who who can give that kind of, of, of opinions? The people who qualify themselves to give that opinion, right? So sometimes you need to acknowledge that you're not the specialist um sitting at the table you know that like the specialist sit, the specialist seat's not yours baby, like And there are some times when a specialist opinion is irrelevant. And I think, you know, we need to acknowledge that, too, because, um, you know, a song may be sort of objectively terrible. But if a lot of people like it, then that's also valid. Um, mm. and, and so it's, yeah, it's about finding that balance of not holding up something objectively as this sort of high quality good because you like it just like it <laughs> you know yeah exactly it can be bad it can be good it doesn't matter as long as you like it i like a lot of terrible music right so there's one thing which really frustrated me um once i started to like i was getting i was listening to more stuff and i was learning i started to go look through like the generations right Mm. And that's actually a lot of work. It's not simply like I'm going to listen to second generation groups. It's a lot. Mm. A lot of stuff happened within a very short period of time. Yeah, that, and I think this is an area that is so overlooked in sort of the, the English language um, part of K-pop studies, but that changeover from the sort of the first generation of domestic Korean groups, HOT, Jexkis, um, oh, who is it, NRG, you know, that, that sort of very domestic facing, um, gr- you know, groups, and mm-hmm. that they really were making music for Korean teenagers, you know, this was the music of Korean teenagers. And then that changeover to sort of the more, um, 
the export driven, the sort of pan Asian, very heavy focus on sort of these solo acts like Boa and, you know, Kangta, Seven, um, Rain, of course, Rain. But it, it's just sort of completely ignored. And mm-hmm. the narrative that's been transmitted um, and edited, especially in the wake of BTS, basically jumps from Solteji and Boys. <laughs> to basically BTS. Nothing like, happened. Nothing happened. Sometimes they mentioned Big Bang, but even then, that they, you know, Big Bang was 2006. So, what, nothing happened between 1994 and 2006? Like, are you kidding? <laughs> it's insane. Right? And the problem is that it's really easy to just say, like, oh, because Hoteji and etc. But there's a very, very, there's a long, not even like just being long because. It's, it's very recent if you think in like time, but a lot of stuff happened and things changed very fast. Um, so that does, it will require some sort of effort. And another thing, I, I'm not American, so I can say this from the perspective of a South American actually. So Latin American people, we are very resentful and I will not apologize for that. <laughs> but the, the US centric speech is really, really annoying in so many levels. I think that if you want to have a conversation about um, what's the greatest K-pop group ever um, on the basis of like with facts, like, okay, so there are, these are my reasons. I think that Big Bang's the biggest group ever. I think that BTS mm-hmm. is the biggest group ever. I think that uh, Super Junior is the biggest group. I think HOT, I think, I don't know, whatever reason people have, like, they, they, they are entitled to their opinion, but what's the basis of that opinion? I think that there are several reasons why you can argue that um, that BTS is, is the greatest group, like if I, a valid point to be made. But if people want to say that simply on the basis of all oh, because they got to billboard, like, but why, what does that mean? I, I need more. I need mm-hmm. more. Um, what do these numbers mean? Because I think that it's a lot more on this on the sense of like they managed to okay to have their fans do things that seemed impossible a couple of years ago. But if we're doing the maths right and we are actually considering things in context, then these numbers, what do they mean if you consider someone like Paul, for example? Or what Bang did. Shaking my ego. I know shaking my ego. Let's go. is something with numbers um that i i take very personally just as a a librarian (laughs) is that uh, you know fans um and academics journalists um they throw numbers around 
coming in from especially yeah, like the social studies specialists that don't they don't give any weight to these numbers or have any context for them um and i've seen some i'll just say some extremely poor survey instruments uh, for some of these um, k-pop academics just very poor survey instruments so so one of the big numbers that they like to use um is record sales you know and what is a the most a, questionable metrics <laughs> yeah in 2022 what does a record sale mean when anecdotally of course but i you know the so the bts they're releasing this three disc anthology the third disc is cd only i saw so many bts fans upset or very anxious because they didn't have cd players so who is listening to all these CDs that they bought? You know, <laughs> like who is listening to these CDs that most of the fan base doesn't have a CD player? I, I mean, this is this is the question. So why, you know, how are CD sales a good metric when so many people don't have CD players anymore? I mean, I do because I'm a you know a big music nerd, but um, <laughs> I do <you> have <laughs> I have a CD player as well in my bedroom. Yeah. I have my own. I, I'm not a, as big of a collector as you, but I do have my small collection of, mm. of CDs now. But yeah, I do. I, I like to listen. I like to see the mixes if they sound different on speaker. But yeah, so the thing that's exactly like so okay. So if we're gonna talk about um, CD sales. Wow, it's outstanding that we're selling all of these CDs and our fans don't even know CD players. Yeah. <laughs> so we're, so they're so popular that everyone's listening to music apparently using the power of their mind. They just look at the disc. <laughs> yeah, so like I think if, if the conversation was on the basis of like people don't even listen to these CDs, they're only buying the CDs because of this and that. So oh, if, we, if our conversation was on that ground, but then we I'd like to tie back to the, what I said about um, apologetics. Um, a lot of the time, and I mean this, I am someone with a background in theology. Um, I did. I'm an architect, but for my 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 bachelor's thesis, I discussed a couple of implications of the relationship between theology and architecture studies. So I do have some some background, some some foundations, or else when you are doing religious work. And that's your religion, okay? You need to be very careful not to let your in your desire to to prove yourself cloud your judgment. That's why we separate um, religious sciences and theology, right? Because religious sciences they are open to questioning, whereas theology isn't. And that's why apologetics is a branch of theology, <laughs> not <laughs> religious science, right? So. Um, Actual fandom studies scholars, they are prepared for those sorts of things because actual academic fans, um, they are they are being questioned all the time about like, is this what I feel or is this what my data is showing me? Yes. And that's a good question. And uh, yeah, I just maybe it's just not enough real world experience in these areas that just causes this blindness um, I don't know if you remember the episode I did with um, the uh, gusts of popular feeling, Matt, the blogger. Yes. But um, he said, which I also experienced this, you know, when you go to a CD store in Korea, you don't find 
the you know Korean equivalent of the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or even the Beatles or the Rolling Stones um, you don't even find really the hits from last last year it's all new CDs for the new groups and that's that is what the CD stores are selling it's for k-pop fans you know many of whom may not even own a CD player um, so yeah you have to again ask yourself what are these metrics measuring um, of, of CD sales when the sort of majority of Koreans listen to music via streaming and have done they were one of the earliest adopters of streaming um, mm-hmm. so it's very yeah it's very curious to see the application of these metrics like CD sales that would have been a good grounds of judgment in the year 2000 being used in 2020 with you know no justification for why for why this should be the case I think sometimes people are really scared to admit like what's right in front of them. And I think the recent situation that we had with um, journalists on Twitter, it's a great example of that Um, because uh, the, the recent wave of harassment that's been around, that was like kind of centered. That was was awful. It was awful. And, but the things that like a lot of the journalists that were coming forward and speaking up, about like the harassment they were getting. Some of these journalists in the past, they were not all of them. I want to be very careful in saying this because it's not like they they um, supported fans, but um, it took a long time for them to speak up. Why? Because when you're dealing with something, especially like I said in the U.S. centered narrative, it, these ha- this has lots of implications because we're talking about. Um, a country that embodies the idea of white white nationalism <laughs> and but it's a country that's full of immigrants and you have a lot of stuff to there's a lot of stuff to be said about um xenophobia and and like there has been a very ugly uh, wave of violence against um, asian people in the us so i understand that if we're talking about when we say international k-pop fans we're usually saying american K-pop fans, these fans, when they act up, people are scared to denounce it because they're scared to support a narrative that is focused on the stereotypification of these fans. So, oh, if I if I say that K-pop fans are harassing me, am I going to be feeding into the screaming fangirls stereotype? Um, no, because K-pop fans are diverse, and yes, of course they are. But we, we we've had a problem for it. it's not like it didn't start last week. This, this has been a thing, like, before I became a, a, a fan myself, I remember I had friends who were harassed, dragged to hell and back by K-pop fans for the, the stupidest BS that you can probably imagine. So this has been a problem for a long time. So people are really scared to denounce what's right in front of them. Um, and that's one of the very delicate things about dealing with the subject of K-pop, because there are a lot of delicate layers to to address and we're always scared that if we talk about the problems we will be feeding into their negative narratives because when we're talking about alternative uh media it's not just alternative media but like alternative products or even like even in politics like when you have the predominant speech of white nationalism of like 
outright and just overall generally over general right wing stuff um the left or stuff that comes from other countries all of these things that are not like the main narrative it there's always that treatment that oh yeah so if this alternative has a problem then we have no other choice than to revert back to white nationalism <laughs> i think in a way it's almost I, I do see the parallels with, you know, sort of the K-pop fans, but it, it's a very online phenomenon, I think, where, yeah, it's like you don't want to feed into this narrative that you don't like, but the only other person or people maybe speaking out on it are people you may not agree with on something else. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so like, say... um Oh, well, you know, just using an example from the recent Korean election, um, you know, I I believe it was one of the sort of incoming ministers for Yoon said something like, you know, what what makes BTS any different from Super Junior? Sort of genuinely like, why why should we give them special treatment? You know, what makes them different from Super Junior? Um, And so, you know, you may agree with that sentiment, but don't want to agree with the person saying it because uh-huh. you don't like their stance on something else maybe but then i feel like it's a very online black and white way of thinking that you can't mm-hmm. y- yeah like you can't support this one opinion without everything else that that person supports sort of coming back to you mm-hmm. I-, I don't know if that makes sense yes it does make a lot of sense yeah and-, and so i think that's where you get these crazy echo chambers because Everyone is afraid to speak out against something because they don't want to get dogpiled. But in in the real world, in real life, it's actually a very common opinion that <laughs> many people hold. You just mm-hmm. can't say it online because you'll get dogpiled. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the fear of being dogpiled is a real, real, real. It's like the, the sword of Damocles that's hanging oh. <laughs> all the time. Like, it's horrible. It's, it's, it's the threat of the internet. Whatever you say might at some point bite back. Yeah. And it, it's it's very sad to watch um, when like journalists have to speak up on, on harassment, for example, the way they did. And I think just watching the way things unfold is very very dangerous. There's some, there was a viral tweet was making rounds a couple of weeks ago about how fans, it wasn't specifically about K-pop fans, it was about fans as a whole, but we've come to a point where a fan, because we, we are so conditioned to think in fandom terms, that we do see fandomship or affiliation as a moral stance. So the things you, you claim to like, they will form the perception that people have of you, the rest of your like your ethics, your perception of the world, and all of these other things. And a lot of fans, they use that like as a moral ground. Like, oh, I, being a fan of this thing gives me that kind of um, superiority, moral superiority. Yeah, that, no, that's very true. I've seen that as well. And it's, it's frustrating to me because the object that they assign all this moral value to, it's not substantial enough to hold it. So you have, you know, things that, like One Direction, um, yeah, BTS, um, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You know, these are commercial products, and there's nothing wrong with liking them, but it, it shouldn't 
inform your character you can you know you're allowed to think that the marvel cinematic universe is trite and (laughs) not very interesting without it it being a um sort of this moral smear against you but i i do wonder you know how much of this has to do with sort of the retreat of traditional religions you know i and people may not be going to church as much um and but there's still that void you know people still want to hold something and have something in common and have these these stories um and if you can't go back to the parables you know maybe maybe you turn to hive i don't know it's all very yeah it's very strange because we're one of a kind of good that i offer a perspective on that as a Christian myself who is I have a lot of a lot of my k-pop circles let's put like this are kind of tied to religion because like uh, I'm I'm a part of a a small collective of progressive Christians that are k-pop fans (laughs) it's it was just a whatsapp group but then we started like there's a radio show that invited us to hold like a month uh, a monthly comment on k-pop and so we be kind of became a collective but yeah so i have a lot of k-pop friends that i met through religious contexts and there's a very interesting thing that i've observed especially with young people um young christians young believers that they really like the aesthetics of being a christian k-pop fan because for example a lot most of them they are usually fans of um, we have a lot of Day6 fans, have a lot of BTS fans, have a lot of Stray Kids fans, which are groups that have a lot of openly Christian members, right? There's a lot of NCT fans as well, because you have Mark there and you have Johnny as well. Mark's a bit more open about it. Um, a couple of um, Icon fans as well, because Bobby's so open about his religious faith as well. So, and especially for younger people, they really like that aesthetics. Like, oh... Of course, I like my worship music, but I really like that this K-pop with these hot people, and like it's it's sung. It's a very religious leaning song that's sung by beautiful people with appealing aesthetics, you know. So it's a much more interesting aesthetics. It's a much more interesting kind of music as well. So oh, I'm doing my devotions, listening to "Best of Me." "Best of Me" is a personal favorite of a lot of Christian army.
so I, these aesthetic element is really, really, really clear in my opinion. Oh, that's fascinating. What about um, uh, Big Bang's Taeyang? He's also a very outspoken Christian, I believe. Usually more like older fans, mm. they lean toward like Taeyang and, oh my goodness, how can I figure um, Shiwon from, from Super Jun as well. Because he's like, he's got all of that. He's a, a very, he's very outspoken as well, right? And he's got, he does a lot of religious, public religious work. And so, but then these are like the, the older fans usually. But then, yeah, they, they still have a lot of that. Um, they think it's beautiful. Like when the still life music video came on and came out. Yeah. Had the, 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 the verse there. And you have Chune from, from Icon. <laughs> he talks a lot about Jesus these days. It's very cute, I, I must admit. Um, but yeah, fans are interested. Like, oh, okay, so the guys in my church, they're all very ugly. But Chune <laughs> is very handsome. You know? so, no, but that, that's that's a real thing. That's a real thing that, oh, that happens. That's fascinating. I, I, and now I wonder if maybe some of that um, sort of passion um, filters into even the non-religious fans who are missing this in their life. That's interesting. I wonder. I do think, well, we, there are plenty of parallels between mm. um, religion and, and fandom affiliation. But I think the aesthetics of K-pop, especially when you lean towards like eternal constant, mm. ideas of eternity and and infinity and, and just like greatness, bigger than life, that sort of thing. Um, they really, it's its different from like girl group music. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's, it's different it's, from a lot of J-pop. And I think from the sort of J-pop leaning K-pop groups, because there, I mean, that, that is something, you know, there are groups that are more focused on Japan um, and Asia. And then there are the groups sort of more aimed at uh, global or Western fans. I, I say this as a believer. I, I do not like, I think some people are calling it churchism, like mm. this kind of stuff that Coldplay does, which is, sounds bigger than life. And it's got just, it's ambiguous enough for believers to eat. Well, that would be like that, um, what is it, that song they just did, My Universe? Never ending forever, baby. There's a lot of that, but the, yeah. their previous album, I forgot the name, I stopped following Coldplay a while ago, but they're, they have been leaning towards this for a while. I think other groups that made, I think, well, The Killers, Brandon Flowers, he's a very religious man, but they did an album that was very ambiguous in that sense, or that had like a lot of hidden messages. 21 Pilots as well. 21 Pilots, um, they did a lot of that, but it's become like, the idea of churchism is more like you're dealing with big words like eternity, um, uh, eternal love, and life. You know, these concepts that are really big, but if you throw these words around, they just make the song sound transcendent. And there's, there's a little of that. And I really prefer it when musicians don't do that as a believer, because it pisses me off. I feel like <laughs> I feel like it's, it, it's a bit... 
it's a, a very unfair type of manipulation mm-hmm. just because I feel that people in a way they they do crave a feeling of being part of something bigger um which and it's not bad like being a fan has got a, a lot of that like uh we are part of a community and etc fan songs usually lean into that right mm. uh, but i usually i still prefer when things are a bit i prefer small scale mm. also a bit pandering and i think people if, if you're paying attention it's kind of insulting yes 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 i think was it i don't i don't remember if she's if you talk about this on your podcast it was some uh of uh exiled fans newsletter i don't remember if i read it if i heard it but like oh. i don't feel manipulated i feel pandered to <laughs> yeah like yeah oh she's my, great great i i i'm always keeping up with her her um newsletters but i don't think it's a problem but there's something and i often go back to uh i don't remember when or where I, this is going to be a bit controversial i just before I, a little disclaimer i do not endorse isuman anyway <laughs> <laughs> this is not like i'm not saying that it's like i know that people get really sensitive when you start to throwing in like the CEO's names um, as a fan it's a, a complicated thing I'm a shiny fan and shiny and shows are very sensitive when you talk about SM but I- any company like when you talk about JYP when you talk about YG I'm not endorsing the CEOs in the way like not saying they're amazing or, or bunk PD but he said something once that you need to go back to the music and that's a very very important thing and I bring it up very often and the reason why i bring it up very often is because if you make the industry entirely centered on content which is a, a shift that we've we've been witnessing for a while now it, you're just making it harder for the most important thing in k-pop which is context context is really important in k-pop because that's the reason why k-pop is even a thing you don't have one group you have a lot you don't have one kind of experience. You have multiple countless. So in in pandering, I think that sometimes the the core of the industry gets lost because if 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 we're still centering everything on music, anyone can still compete. You know, of course, some groups have more money <laughs> and they can throw in the content to to back up. But if the, we're still focused on music, all the like the smaller groups, the smaller agencies, they still have a shot at like getting a, a charting and attracting new fans. All of these things are possible because anyone can make music, but not everyone can make like a 3G experience. Metaverse. Immersion. 
yeah yes with a game and a reality show on exactly. mnet exactly. yeah that yeah. that's yeah that's an interesting perspective and i you know i agree I, i've been accused of you know getting paid by any number of k-pop companies which <laughs> no one has given me a dime um to do anything i do but um yeah I, I, what i think lee suman um and again not to endorse him personally but i think he's a very smart businessman and he really more than anyone else has shaped what k-pop is today for better or worse and um what i i've found interesting about bts and the way they've been marketed is exactly what you just said about the context is that you know they they had all these new fans come in without understanding any of that context and they sort of have picked and chosen all of these bits from other previous k-pop groups and put them together um, into this sort of weird hybrid that attempts to encompass all of k-pop in one company and in one group and it just doesn't work it's it's risky it's risky you probably remember when i think it was early 2020 when is one he was um assisting in the production of luna's music i have i have thoughts about that i'm a luna's fan i'm a luna fan i'm an orbit so i have thoughts about that but you, you wonder like oh why was he doing that he was like espo was already about to to debut why was he doing that and the reason why he was doing that because he knows that you can't just release a group if you don't have like more context to keep feeding to that he's got how many generations has like he, he, he's been doing that for a while so he knows why it's necessary for one generation to follow the the other one though like each generation is going to have their own characteristics um so i think that it was a very dangerous especially for big hit to try to disenfranchise bts so much from k-pop um, when they were just about to release to debut other groups that are a lot more K-pop-y. Yeah, and it, I don't think it worked. I really don't think it worked. And what, yeah, I mean, gosh, I have half an episode written about Super M, which uh-huh. <laughs> I should finish. But but one of the interesting things about sort of Super M um, and, you know, Lee Suman uh, that I really think informed this the you know where k-pop is today is because from the beginning he was the one who came up with um this idea of like having sort of the sm brand and so he was releasing like sm town or sm you know um group cds where all like all of the groups would come together and you know each would have a song or they would do collaborate together um very much in the way that you know a johnny's and associates does or um oh i can't think now but but you know in in that way or avex like where you have all of the sort of artists under this one brand name umbrella and so fans come in and they don't just stand one group but they'll check out the next one Mm -hmm. um and i think that this sort of idea and this way of branding really spread out into um, K-pop generally. Um, and that's where I think more than anything else, sort of the big three come from. Um, and I think with Big Hit, rather than sort of doing this organically, tried to buy. Um, I think they tried it with TXT, which again, yeah, you're right. They, they 
at that time they were they had really divorced BTS from K-pop and so here comes this new group it just it didn't work and um, yeah so then they tried to buy the sort of umbrella label you know by getting Seventeen and G Friend and Newest but uh, it just it it just doesn't hold together they still try to like BTS still keeps very much separated from from the rest of the the hype groups. Um, at least I, I still get that perception. Um, if, especially if you consider what you expect from um, senior and junior relationship from other companies. I feel that it, it was unfair on the new groups because you, uh, how are you going to have these groups, these artists saying that, uh, how are you going to endorse? I'm not going to say like they never said that, but they endorsed the idea that they were beyond the rest of the industry, but then you've got newcomers who will be very much part of that industry. I still think that, I think that what TXT got, like they were really ahead of the, their time in a way because they were literally the first group to really jump on the emo revival. I think since, since Runaway, Runaway was already like a very much pop punk leaning. Um, so they really got that. And I still feel that they are the, when I think of this K-pop punk combination, I still think of TXT and they did very well on, on TikTok and that's great for them. I really like TXT, so I'm, I'm very partial to them in that sense. But I think it was unfair of, the, of that sense of the company to market a group as being so separated from the rest of the industry while trying to market another one as being the next step in the industry. I was watching, we're talking about um, Treasure Box, and I watched Win as well, of these. There is the expectation that in the way the producers conduct it, like there is an expectation of continuing a tradition, continuing a legacy, right? You are a new artist, you are carrying this company's legacy. Um, if you are in Treasure, you are carrying Big Bang's legacy, you're carrying Winner's legacy, Gary Icon's legacy. So how are you doing that? When that Win who is next reality show is interesting because um, that is right at the prime of the sort of YG family era and yeah you had members of Big Bang I think even um, Epic High come on when who is next to give some advice and you know I think 21 members were there as well yeah yeah so it was very much that sense of you're you know you're joining um, this sort of esteemed <laughs> legacy and yeah you're carrying the weight of these groups on your shoulders and I think you know the YG is a different company now but I, I, I think <laughs> yeah but I, I think Treasure really has tried um, I haven't seen much of theirs but I, I do remember when they first debuted they had there was a very cute cover that they did on the radio of um, the Mino and Bobby it was a Mino and Bobby a mob release mm -hmm. that was just so it was just so perfect <laughs> just the perfect energy they were definitely it. trained by YG you can, you yes. can tell that yeah yeah
오늘따라 놀고 싶네 근데 내 번호가 스팸인지 다들 쉽네 정준의 베개 나는 쉽네 안 되겠어 오늘의 기간은 아침에 내 볼로 바라봐도 놀고 싶은 멋쟁이들 돈이 없는 거쟁이는 내 지갑을 믿고 와라 차는 내비 두고 와라 두 발로 맞다가 내 발로 기억해 두 두비 두 다따라 Let's make a five five for time 춤춰 말고 다가가 두두두이 그녀 가슴에 한번 불타는 밤 허무하게 보낼 수는 없어 One of the, I think, earlier when BTS were still going through that phase of um, transitioning from the most beautiful moment in life into wings. I think that the fact that Big Hit didn't have a tradition to hold on to was really good for them um, because a tradition sometimes has its own way of making sure things don't ever change. <laughs> But at the same time, I think that uh, there's a, a, a sense of there are certain things that must be done a certain way. Because not just all they've been working for this long, but they are the reason why things have been working for this long. And I think that it really does make a lot of difference. Now, I, I feel that Hype changed a lot over the last couple of years. Well, Big Hit and Hype, they've, they've changed a lot as a company, as the structure, like what's Big Hit music, have Source music, you have Pledis, you have Zico's companies. Like now that Zico's out of the yard, let's see what, what's that going to be about but um they're still i think establishing their own character so perhaps it's gonna take a, a, another generation for the company to really find like you no know, this is the way we do things the way we want to do things and even like for example i remember when super m came out <laughs> what a what an era right oh gosh yeah. I miss I miss chopping. I don't miss getting harassed by armies, but exactly. I I do miss chopping. <laughs> I miss Supreme. I do not miss the harassment. Yes, I, I you know, and I still don't understand. I mean, why Super M generated that much vitriol from fans? It really it doesn't make sense to me. I I genuinely don't understand where the hatred comes from. I have a bunch of theories, but. <laughs> One of the things that I remember I was often accused of was um, that I, I, at the time, we used to have a lot of conversations about all the creative decisions that Big Hit was making regarding BTS. We weren't very sure of these decisions. 2019 was a weird year, I feel. They were still like trying to figure out how to keep things going. There was like the lurking threat of enlistment. And that was three years ago. Yeah. But I remember that one thing that when Jopping came out, I loved Jopping. And I loved it when it came out. But people were really accusing us like, oh, you make excuses for, for Super M that you wouldn't make for BTS. And I remember one of the things that I don't know if people get this, but you, when you compare things, you don't usually apply the same standards to them. That's not like, that's not being partial. That's actually being fair. Um, because, for example, I'm an NCT fan, okay? And 
SM has been doing song shopping for the longest time. That's how SM works. SM buys music and they, um, you've, you will have their in-house songwriters write the lyrics, but most of SM's music has always been produced like at least like half of it by uh, foreign producers, foreign songwriters, right? So that's what I expect from SM. That's not what I expect from, for example, from YG, mm. right? And that was not what I expected from, from Big Hit back then because Big Hit, you had like the in-house producers that were really to my taste. You had their songwriters, you had BTS members doing their, their songs and that was something that people liked. So when they started to switch to that more like song shopping idea, it was very weird. So because yeah, I, I don't they, think... they kind of established into that right now. Right? Yeah, I I mean I don't know if newer fans even know about it. Because I, I go back, I really <laughs> going to sound confused here, but I, I really wish that armies hadn't like really ruined so many associations I had with BTS because some the the music of that earlier era I really really enjoyed and. Um, I think it was the documentary for, I think it was the uh, Most Beautiful Moment in Life Encore concert in Seoul, which is still one of my favorite concert DVDs. Um, but I, I want to say that the members said, maybe it was Yoongi, that they had written maybe half the music. It was, some, it was something like 50% of the music was, was from them and they wanted to increase it. Oh Every, yeah, it was that interview that um, Namjoon and and Yoongi they okay. gave this interview. Yeah, yeah, and they wanted to increase it, but it was right around that time because it was the most beautiful moment in life. I remember that, and yeah, that they they had done half the music themselves, and they wanted to keep increasing the percentage. You know, every um, comeback. You know, moving forward, which really is how a groups groups from like YG, that's how they work. And that's actually how HOT, <laughs> how HOT works yeah. too. But the opposite happened. Uh -huh. And it, to me, you know, what I had liked so much about BTS, again, was less that member involvement in the sort of domestic Korean sound and just to have that go away and be replaced with, yeah, more sort of SM style song shopping, but without the ear for a hit that the SM song buyers have uh, it just uh, yeah it's disappointing and, and mm -hmm. you know we should be allowed to say so
저기 혼자 멈춰버려도 좋아 and then and then the reason why we're not really allowed to say so without getting harassed is because people they really attach their being a fan to a moral stance so if you disagree with my point of view then you are automatically automatically excluded from my 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 umbrella of mercy <laughs> You know, the, the extent to which I'm willing to extend my grace to someone. And that's a really uh, the, the religious aspect of, of fandom. And it's very concerning. We've had a couple of issues in the academic community related to, to research over the, the past couple of years, especially when like things start to get bigger, people start to do more events and fans realize that people doing research don't necessarily have the same opinions that they hold and that sometimes people doing research will have more nuanced perspectives and they will not be too scared to say it out loud and these might not align with the the narrative when i say narrative with a capital n yeah mm. narrative i'm writing a piece about it but i don't know if i want to finish it <laughs> But it's, it's all related to, because these recent news of like Elon Musk buying Twitter and he's saying that you will have to verify your account, which is a terrible, might be terrible news for, for his 10 Twitter, right? Um, it really prompted me to think about a lot of things. And there's one thing which is very important. Twitter has never really touted itself as a, a community platform. Twitter is a... Uh, information sh sharing service but twitter really affords community because people really bond over opinions and it's all very fast and you can find things very easily i whenever let's say I, i was watching like i was watching treasure box and there was a trainee that really looked like uh, a vix member the first thing i did i stopped what i was doing so i i searched his name next to Hakyeon, which is the, the VIX member name. And I found a bunch of tweets of people saying the same thing. And I started retweeting them in my account because it's very easy to find people who think the same thing. You know, you can, in, you can even like get started in the community so easily. Like, oh, I, I've just found that I love BTS. So I'm going to find other people that like BTS. And that's going to happen very easily because Twitter allows people to find themselves ready. So in the end, It's not a community building platform, but it affords community. But it, that's a terrible thing because since it's something that's focused on sharing information, people share things so many times and so fast. Things change so quickly that they simply start shaping their perceptions without even noticing. And one of the aspects of Twitter is that time does not make sense because a lot of stuff happens because you just repeat things. Another word that we throw around a lot, which is discourse. So let's say, so a couple of, of hours ago, Seventeen released their highlight medley for their next album. And I opened, I have an account which is dedicated to Hoshi. It's just for Hoshi content. And I opened that account and it was like just people giving out their opinions about the highlight medley. And the more I scroll through, like, I must, if I scroll for like five minutes, I saw 200 different opinions about the highlight medley. Okay. 
So it took like maybe 30 minutes for a discourse to be formed. And then everyone that people were agreeing or disagreeing, people were starting to get ratioed and all that stuff that we know that happens. So in this short, short space of 30 minutes, a new narrative had been formed about something that wasn't even out 32 minutes ago. It's very fast. Yeah, that's true. And in these different communities that form on Twitter, which you're right, they are very real. Um, and, you know, you have soccer Twitter and you have um, movie review Twitter and you have politics Twitter. You know, there's no firm walls to separate them. And so sometimes you'll have, you know, somebody makes a joke on, um, you know, one Twitter where the the rules of discourse allow for more um, irony or joking and it gets retweeted into another group on twitter where those rules you know go in a different way and so people get mad and they come in and ratio and i i feel like we've seen this a lot in sort of recent days um you know after the grammys uh, mike dean uh, made some you know dumb comment about bts um coming from you know his his side of Twitter where you can make dumb jokes and no one really cares or it's, you know, it, if you're offended, mm-hmm. it's fine. Um, but because army Twitter doesn't allow for that kind of joking, you know, he had like, you know, thousands and thousands of quote tweets mm-hmm. and um, people harassing him and he had to issue an apology for a really a, a completely nothing sort of harmless comment. It's, but this is this is what happens when these communities sort of interact unintentionally. Yeah, and that's one of the things. Um, there's a, a scholar. She says that Twitter is a. She calls like the context collapse because you have all of these different spheres and bubbles, and that's why it's Twitter is so convenient for fans as well because you have like, you have other fans, you have your favorite artists, but you also have media outlets there. You have potential new fans. Everyone's there. But when you have so many different people, another problem, it's it's really overwhelming. So another problem is that the idea of boundaries is completely erased. So the boundaries are still there, but people, they it's very hard for them to acknowledge them. So you have people who in real life, they wouldn't even look you in the eye, calling you a bunch of names on Twitter over mm. a harmless opinion. Well, let's right. maybe we should talk about what actually happened to Juwan Park right. because this is I think this is what happened to her where she made a comment sort of coming from you know somebody who is immersed in sort of the Korean cultural context where the topic of you know sort of women's rights and um, sexual harassment and sort of these issues are being they're very keenly felt I think and they were a big factor in the election that had just happened. And, you know, she makes a comment sort of coming from that context um, about, what was it, a song, a songwriter who had worked with BTS on some songs. Do you remember off the top of your head what he had, um, what he's been accused of? I think, was it Molka? I think, yeah, I think so. Like multiple accusations yeah and the woman um it committed suicide i think which is very sad yeah um yeah so this is a case that had been in the news and um you know on the recent anthology album they had chosen to keep his songs sort of on the album mm-hmm. 
and this had been a source of controversy among sort of domestic Korean fans. And you have to yeah. think. Actually, it's an important point. Like hmm. Korean fans, they they started their own hashtag asking for the song to be removed from the anthology. I saw that. I was looking on Naver and I saw that like someone reported on that. Fans started a hashtag. Yeah, so this is a domestic Korean issue with, you know, you have to think the majority of of bts's fans in korea are women you know this is an this is an important issue um for women in korea and you know jiwon park brings it to english language fan twitter uh and sort of all hell breaks loose and i mean it it was pretty wild watching the meltdown over i think maybe three days i don't even know if wild is is enough because <laughs> it was such a terrible wave and I think that just with the fact that like, it's an account that has a lot of followers and other people with a lot of followers started endorsing it. I remember there was like one of these big um, Twitter opinion makers, opinion leaders, actually, opinion leaders, um, made a thread saying, oh, it's very dangerous to generalize. And I was so angry. And, um, and they ended up deleting the thread, but I did not forget. I remember what was said because... When people have a history of constantly resorting to violence um, and you never address it because you're too scared, you're actually saying that you, you're not scared, but like like we mentioned, you're too, oh, you don't want to resort to stereotypes. You don't want to, to make it seem like you are uh, attacking someone who's vulnerable, which is not the case in question. Um, you're just showing how you don't care about the victims. And a lot of previous victims came forward as well, like, this is not, this, we're not letting it slide. Yeah, because if it had just been, I think, fans disagreeing or, or mad, you know, that's one thing. And I think, you know, I think if you're a journalist on Twitter, you know, you have to expect some of that. But I, I mean, the, the just the many, many the DMs and um, she was getting like sort of, really ugly sexualized language Mm -hmm. um tweeted at her and um it became like a you know a a joke i think that there was like somebody had sent her pussy p-u-s-s-a-y sort of a a misspelling of pussy and that became like an army joke it trended on twitter and it just you know for somebody coming from this sort of more conservative and very patriarchal korean I mean, it just is very, it just seems so ugly and mean. And, and then, you know, she, again, you know, we don't know the extent of, um, of what happened and what didn't happen, but she says, you know, that, that people had been gotten to her LinkedIn and were emailing past employers or in all her contacts there and, um, calling her, you know, xenophobic or misogynist and all these things. And it's just... You know, what on earth justifies this kind of of dogpiling for, you know, just if you don't like her opinion, just block her and move on. You know, it's well, I, I don't I, I don't remember correctly, but I don't even think she was actually issuing an opinion, just like reporting what was happening, mm. which just makes it even worse. Like, because it's not even the opinion, it's just a reporting, like just simply doing the job of a reporter. It's very scary. Because when you look at like the, it was, there were so many messages. It's scary. If if you've ever been dogpiled on the internet, just know that like waking up to a ratio or 
just, I don't know, I remember when I still had my Curious Cat during Super M era, and I opened my Super Cat, my Curious Cat, and there were like a lot of messages. I wouldn't even look at them. I just didn't want to just see what people were saying. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's it's really unwarranted. It's completely unwarranted. Yeah, and you know, people will say, "Oh, you can just close the window and and leave it there," but it's it is it is scary and it is um it just feel threatening and it doesn't feel good certainly because i remember um you know two twitters ago i mean i had i had to close my dms um i'd been <laughs> i'd been so open to like just talk mm-hmm. to anyone and um i i just had to stop because i i would i had all these people calling me you know a liar um mis- yeah misogynist xenophobic homophobic over this um, smallest, yes. You know, and it's, again, and I'm just a, a blogger. I think I maybe had, you know, at the time, maybe 50 people, <laughs> like, regularly reading my posts. It certainly didn't warrant um, the reaction that I got. But, yeah, it, it wasn't pleasant. You know, I had people uh, messaging anyone that I followed and telling them to block me. Um, people tracked me to like my personal Instagram and I had to put that on private. And, uh, I, I mean, it was just very, it was just very unpleasant. You're still, you're still very traumatized by it. I, 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 know it. <laughs> I am, I am. I don't, you know, I, I still, I, I, you know, I've had to be very careful. I, you know, I don't have a easily accessible sort of way to reach me. Um, which is on purpose because um, I, I mean, I guess if you could, you know, I guess if you do this professionally, if you're a journalist, then, you know, maybe you have a better way to deal with it, but just, you know, I'm, I'm just a person (laughs) with opinions. There's a researcher in, I think it's Japanese studies and she released like a guide on how to handle harassment on the internet first callers but i think it's very useful and one of the things that she was really harassed um because of her stances on um japanese imperialism one of the things she said like not everyone that's following you is entitled to follow you so you are you should feel free to block people from following you or just not letting people follow you at all which is what you do when you decide to settle for private accounts for good which is what i did as well but the thing about boundaries and the way fans move on the internet, you, I, I, I told you this, and I'm going to say this, in, but there's the fan, not violence, but like fandom infighting, infighting is something that's always happened in fandoms, but especially in K-pop, this has happened before. And that's, if you think back to like um, HOT and Zexis, for example, like that rivalry, it was... It was part of the the landscape at the time, right? When fans used to fight and <laughs> and that all those things. Um, so companies they've known of the the fact that fans resorted to violence, but not only that. I remember I don't know much about this, so you could perhaps talk about it. But uh, like from the sixties, I think Korean fans they had fights or already had fights. I don't know. Oh, it was the, um, yes, this was Matt again from Gus of Popular Feeling, who, honestly, if you're listening to this and you don't know all that much about sort of pop culture, Korean pop culture of years past, he's such a good resource. But he um, had the story of the two rival Cliff Richards fan clubs <laughs> meeting at the airport and, 
<laughs> getting into a fight. Exactly. So, like, <laughs> this, is, this is something, the fact that fans resort to violence is something that is, it's been in the known in the industry for a while, sure. right? Well, so, I mean, even, even in the West, you have, you know, Blur versus Oasis, which was a real thing. I mean, the fans themselves didn't fight, but they fought with record sales. Or um, mm-hmm. the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC, um, who deliberately set up to be rivals, to spur uh-huh. record sales. I mean, this happens. It's part, yeah, you're right. It's part of being a fan. Or sports yes. teams, you know, you become a fan of one sports team. Like, so if you're, I spend a lot of time in Boston, in in Massachusetts, and Boston has a baseball team called the Red Sox. If you become a Red Sox fan, you automatically hate the Yankees. <laughs> automatically. <laughs> There's no question. You just, you hate the Yankees. Um, and so this is very much a part of fandom. If you were a Blur fan, you hated Oasis. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're, if, you know, if you're trying to set up a rivalry, if you like HOT, you hate Jexies. Yeah. So these rivalries, they, they benefit the mm. companies. Mm, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. but then that it comes, I think another journalist who said that, I think it was, well, I'm not going to, I'm not sure who said that, but. Um, in, in sports, like they know about the problem with like hooliganism, for example, and they address it. So why are companies letting their fans run around doing all of this damage without ever addressing it? There's an expectation that this will be addressed. You know, because fans, they represent the group. So we're only representing when we are doing beautiful things. But the other side of the story, that's when it comes like, we, we discuss a lot, quite often, how people, they try to center their own experience as fans. Even though, like, oh, I think my experience is valid. And yes, your experience is very valid. Like, well done. But there is a uh, there are major problems that are happening that might not align with your experience, but they must be addressed. So we've been saying that it would, it would get to a, an uglier point, but it's been ugly for a long time been very ugly for a long time and for how much longer are agencies supposed to just keep pretending that their fans are not harassing to the point that like a lot of people came forward to say i know people who just they will never ever report on k-pop ever again because they don't want to have fans um, um, like checking them up they don't want fans yeah i mean look what happened to james corden over a completely harmless joke I mean, he, you know, was getting death threats. And where was the response from the company? I mean, it's just, it's unacceptable. It really is. And, you know, you can say sports fans do the same thing, but they don't. They don't. Not like this.
then it goes back to like K-pop communities when you're talking about global K-pop fandom. They're so spread out, so they really need the digital element to bring them all together. And so they're all coming together at the same place that everyone else is coming together. It's it's been set for for like a fallout for a long time. Like Twitter is always I remember like 12 years ago, 13 years ago, and Twitter was already a battlefield. And it's only getting worse, but people are getting hurt. That's the problem. Like, so are we just simply gonna pretend that there are no implications? Oh, there are, that there are no victims, that no one's getting problems. You probably remember this, but um, a, a person I know, the uh, fans, they like tried to get her kicked out of her master's program over like an opinion on Twitter. And it was like the university had to respond. They they fabricated fake screenshots of things she had not said. And everyone that showed support suffered some backlash as well. And in the end, she was not kicked out because everything was made up. But they tried to do that. They went that far. So, so is this behavior simply going to go unchecked? Because all these are... Because our fans are just making money and they're they're buying our stuff. It, then there's that aspect that yeah, the perhaps there's an overlapping because the fans that do this kind of thing, these are the same people who will put in the most money. Is that an overlap? They probably have that data. Um, so is it worth? Is it financially advantageous to 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 speak up? But then. What we're going to do about the victims? Are we simply going to let, like, because I haven't seen any sort of feedback from the journalists. And I, haven't, I haven't really checked, but I don't know if they've said anything, like if anyone said anything about what they got. Yeah, I doubt they got any response. And I wonder if this is part of the problem, too. Like you said, the, the global nature of fandom sort of intruding in these local spaces, because there was also the issue with the, um, the Bavarian DJ, who made, you know, a tasteless joke about BTS after their first, was it, it was something with Coldplay, he was like a Coldplay fan, and he didn't much care for BTS, and I think he, he made some disparaging remark about their cover um, of a, a Coldplay song or something, and um, I think he, oh, he compared them to, um, he, he was like, oh, it's a virus infecting the youth or something. But they, you know, they harassed him out of a, a job. And this is a Bavarian DJ uh, speaking a, a German, you know, German dialect, maybe heard by, what, a few tens of thousands of people, if that. And, in you know, he had his comments made global, translated into numerous languages, yeah. spread <laughs> to millions of people. This made, you know, sort of the, the news in so many countries where if if no one had you know they just let it pass as sort of a you know he was he was known as a sort of shock jock um for american listeners kind of like a howard stern or um just somebody who says offensive things like he was uh -huh. known for saying offensive things um to get attention uh or just to be and he got exactly what he wanted yeah, I don't. I don't think he wanted this. Um, <laughs> but, attention. I mean, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, but, yeah, but so, so you know, here you have fans, global fans, going into a local media market, plucking out something totally out of context, and you know, probably 
cost this man his his job his livelihood you know for what what was the point what was the purpose what 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 on earth was the point of this i will say that i'm a bit i can be a bit vengeful sometimes so i will not confirm nor deny that i was happy that he lost his job <laughs> <laughs> but i think one of the things that you that i think it's a, the point that must be discussed about this is the thing of spreading mm. the spreading mm. um so that, do you remember the the break wings episode yes yeah so for, for listeners if anyone's not familiar with it break wings was a project that was kind of proposed by and like bts entities um ahead of the release of wings in october 2016 and it was in XOL and like two, it, it was like an XOL and a couple of other friends of her. And she proposed that, like, oh, we should try to ruin BTS's comeback. This was an actual thing. I have all of the, I've, I've got all, everything concerning this case, um, all of the, 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 the information. And the thing was that the reaction was a lot bigger than the case. If no one had talked about it, it wouldn't have gotten anywhere because she didn't have any support. So a lot of things that happened, you know, when you, you're on Twitter and someone says like a person makes a comment and all of a sudden everyone's talking about that comment. And so it makes you feel like, oh, everyone's saying it has got this opinion, but actually it was one person and everyone turned that little comment into something much bigger. <laughs> this happens all the time all the time and it, it is something to be questioned like should we be amplifying these things oh no but we need to speak again speak up against those things yes of course but would it have gotten this big if people hadn't like turned it into something big i think this is definitely something that should be considered and but this is a conversation that requires a lot a lot of nuance and once again people have gotten none and you also have to wonder too, because it's so easy to do this and it's so easy to take sort of these negative, you know, comments or, or, or some these small comments and get fans feeling so protective and so defensive of their favorite that um, it's very easy for companies to encourage this, especially uh -huh. around comeback time, because, you know, you say, you know, you have um, sort of the fan, the quasi official fan accounts who, um, you know, the, the fandom leaders, if, if they, they can take, uh, I think that the G-Man and T-shirt incident is a good example where, you know, maybe the, the Japanese nationalists are complaining about um, a t-shirt and you amplify this and try to use it as sort of a, a backhanded promotion almost where you want fans feeling um, protective and defensive so that they get more invested and um, so that they're hate reading and hate scrolling and clapping mm -hmm. back and you know oh let's donate to the comeback so that um, we can prove all those haters wrong let's stream really hard to prove all those haters wrong. I mean, I think this is effective to an extent for these companies, but I, I think you can reach a tipping point where there's no more outrage to give because you've used it all up. <laughs> like, 
Well, I think nothing I thinks think and people get tired. The burnout is real. The mm. burnout is real. I think all of the the expectations are like, oh, this could be the last one. Oh, this could be their, their last opportunity. All of these strategies that count on people feeling peer pressured to do the most, people just get really tired. And, and there's a like, danger of backlash, too. Yeah, there's always yeah. a danger, because I think that is what happened in 2018 with the T-shirt in Japan. There was a very real backlash, um, I think far stronger than was intended. And um, it cost, I think, BTS a lot of opportunities in Japan. Not just thinking of like a top-down top down measures, but also thinking of like internal stuff. My research, when I was like digging into Stan Twitter to find the stuff. I was looking for more, um, I was trying to understand like how the the, the fan, intra-fandom specific dynamics had played out. Because yes, you do have like companies, they do make use of whatever they can to help promote groups. We, we've seen that countless times. And that, okay, I mean, that's fine. That's what they need to do. That's what companies exist, right? Promoting and making sure that group is still financially advantageous, keeping that group, right? So, but when it comes to fandom, one of the things that I wanted to understand is how, like, the individual actions, not individual, but, like, individual actions and group actions, how these things, things that hadn't been planned, how they had caused some impact, when it comes to outrage on Twitter, a lot of people, they live off rage tweeting. You know, these accounts where everything they do is just like we sh we, uh, the shooters, right? Yes, the shooters. They promote themselves and they are seen, they are perceived as amazing fans because they're always getting into fights and defending, right? Some of them, some people, they even use like shooting, being, becoming a shooter as a strategy to become like uh, integrated into fandom, right? Because if you're new, you have a lot to learn. But if you, you are new, but you're already like shooting for our boys, then you are more than welcome to say whatever you want because you are one of the good ones, right? And they really, the ways that shooting might influence the way a fandom moves are insane. That's something that I really think about when it comes to the, the break wings thing, but not just let that. Recently, after, let me just switch back a little bit. When, we, when it comes to the, the conversation of is BTS K-pop, is BTS not K-pop? Uh, it was the, the first panel that I watched at the BTS conference was actually about that. It was a girl who was presenting, oh, is BTS still considered, can be considered K-pop? And I think she wrapped up the conversation very well because she, she made the actual thing that matters about this. Is what K-pop is after BTS. That's the, the, the thing that matters the most. And we cannot talk about that without mentioning groups that could only, like, in many ways, straight kids, they are a product of the aftermath of BTS, of 80s as well. All of these groups that are, that they, at the core of their concept, uh, there are several things that became popular because BTS succeeded at what they did. So when I think about stays, stays, they can be so, <laughs> they are so overly protective. And there's this thing because usually when you think I was talking to someone else this week about your journey enables you to make certain choices as an artist. Like, 
for example, Taylor Swift, like Taylor Swift, she's been going back and forth. She started as a country singer and then she moved into pop, but now she could come back to that indie folk stuff that is country leading. Why? Because she has her journey to back her up, right? So the time that she's been an artist enables her to make those decisions. And one thing that it seems is that because in K-pop things happen so fast and you have so much content and etc., the notions of time, they're very distorted to the point that, like, I was upset because uh, Treasure, they do not have enough music, as much music as I expect a two-year-old group to have, or a year and a half, actually. I think things happen really fast. But then you have these new groups debuting into this environment in which fans, they are so desperate for that narrative, that driving that they attribute to very new groups, the same things that old, long-running groups have. And I think this is really real when it comes to Stray Kids, because like Stray Kids now, they are, they've been going on for a while. I really like Stray Kids. I really like them. My entire family loves Stray Kids. But Stace, ever, like since forever, I've always seen them. They always use a very similar kind of speech because Stray Kids, they got some hate when they debuted it. So you have like these associate associations like, oh, they got hate because of this. And then you build the new narrative and you are treating rookies as if they have been struggling as a, an actual group for like ages. This cycle, like the renewing of cycles. I don't know if I'm making a lot of sense here. That no, you, you make sense. Um, and I, I think you're right. I think that, that um, fans have come to expect a certain narrative from these groups and these groups coming up sort of in the wake of BTS where that really has become such a part of be being a fan is following this narrative and always wanting the next thing and I, you know I swear I see we you know people that we haven't even gotten like a new the new single yet maybe just the teasers but people are already waiting for the next one and I'm uh -huh. like, it hasn't even been released yet. <laughs> like, and you're already uh -huh. like looking forward to the next album. Like it's crazy. There's just this complete lack of, of, uh, I don't know, just sort of a, people aren't really focused on what's in front of them and appreciating it and enjoying it because we're all racing to fulfill the next fandom goals. And it just uh -huh. is such a, this is, it's not, I mean, fandom has always been, you know, especially K-pop, which it is different from J-pop in a lot of ways. And, but one of them is, yeah, like sort of this, these numbers and competition has always, you know, it, it became such a part of K-pop in a way that it's just not in J-pop. Um, but it didn't, I mean, I feel like we used to at least enjoy a comeback cycle you know, spend a couple weeks just sort of like jopping or, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and, and not that like every, every era was perfect. You know, I think shiny talks about how fans, um, you know, they would always be sort of hesitant whenever a new shiny song came out, like, Oh, are we going to like this? Um, I think, um, yeah, like everybody, like the reaction was a little mixed, but then people, once they heard it enough, they're like, oh yeah, we like this. Um, oh. I think View was the same way. Um, but it, I feel like we don't even give, there's not even that anymore. It's the new song isn't even out and we're already looking for the next one. The, the, one of the things that I think is really behind this desperation for what comes next is really because 
what fans seem to be expecting, not a lot, not all fans, but a lot of fans, they seem to be expecting. It's not the music, it's not the, the music video, but what sort of social capital this new comeback is gonna afford me? So, oh, this new, like, 17, they just broke their own record in, in, in pre-orders, which is great. Like, I'm a Horangdan, so, like, whenever I see Hoshi thriving, I'm thriving with him. Like, it's a joke, guys. I don't, I don't believe in self-identification. But <laughs> it, like, I love it when 17 do well because it means that Hoshi's doing well, which is great. But, um, like, okay, so this comeback has afforded this, this, and that. The the K-pop fans they turn anything into social capital. It's insane. Like fans do that, but K-pop fans the micro, the attention to micro details is insane. Like the the track list and the the credits and the the teasers and how many teasers, how many days, and the music videos and everything. So what what's enjoying the comeback? They do not have time to enjoy the comeback because they're really busy fighting. And using, like, seeing, oh, this new set of content. What is it going to afford me? Like, what can I do with this? Uh, how can I, I I proclaim my fave superiority through this new set of content that I've been provided? I will say, I think this is a very important point. One of the things that we've always said that it's the, the, the threat of letting fandoms live freely in their infighting is that it makes the environment really hard to breathe very tiring and people just get tired very easily very easily and they leave and if your fans leave what you're gonna do yeah no it's true it's very true um you always see posts on you know the sort of the k-pop forums and reddit and other places of fans sort of leaving fandom because they're tired they're just tired should end with a little discussion of the recent um, K-pop conference uh, panel in um, at Stanford where of Suho course. came. Am I allowed to, to, to talk about Suho first? <laughs> yeah, please. I thought he did yeah. so well. I was really quite impressed with I'm how he carried biased. himself. Yeah. I'm very biased because oh. <laughs> he is one of my exo biases. Like it's him and, and Shumin, so they're my exo biases. So I was even if he had just stood there still and like someone else was speaking, he was just like, I would have loved him. Like, oh, he did so great. But first <laughs> of all, I'm always, I'm, I'm Brazilian, like I mentioned at the beginning, but I teach English and I know that, and I, I, I speak Korean as well. So 
um, I know how difficult, how different both languages are. And they picked up English so fast, like to get to the level that he eventually got right now when he was away in the army. And I was so proud of him. And he was speaking so well. He looked so handsome. It was on this moment. I was just like, oh my goodness. <laughs> and you know, it's really amazing. I thought he did a really good job of knowing when to speak English uh-huh. and knowing when to rely on the translator. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, I thought the translator um, or the interpreter did a very good job as well. Yeah. Um, because I, I noticed him telling Suho, you know, I'm sure filling him in on what people were saying um, so that he could follow, you know, what was happening. And he, was, he just looked really, really proper. He's a very intelligent guy. And he he really is like for anyone who follows EXO, just know that he's got this amazing sense of leadership and he's been a great leader to EXO. And I'm I'm glad he didn't debut with Shiny because Axel needed him. <laughs> but I think he did very well. I think he did what he had. To. He went there to do like the. Well, he was a um, he came as a representative of the K-pop industry. So the the panel, I don't remember the exact title, but it was sort of on um, I guess sort of the the growth of K-pop or the the K-pop boom um, and sort of what that meant. And there were three main panelists. There was Suho, there was um, the president, or I think, or a high executive from the CJENM American office. And then there was um, an academic who was Asian American, but she had no background in anything related to K pop. Oh. <laughs> um, nothing about, you know, Korean studies music, idols, fandom. She was just a fan, essentially an academic who was a fan. Mm-hmm. And so those were the three panelists. And um, I thought it was a very interesting panel for a lot of reasons. But um, did you notice that they didn't? They never talked about the music or the um, artistry involved at all? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did. I did. Which we take, I'm, 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 I say we because I know that you share my opinion, um, that... Um, That's not the main uh, appeal. It's not the main appeal of K-pop. It's really I'm in not. The wake, I'm in the wake of having just watched a Treasure Box and like one of my favorite Treasure members, um, he suffered a lot. He was one of the, he had been at YG. He was not the longest running trainee, but he'd been there for a long time. And he was just struggling a lot. And I, my heart broke so, so bad for him. And not just him, but other trainees that were working so hard and they were suffering at the hands of, of YG. It was being very mean to them. And so I'm still in that wake of that feeling. But I, I know that I'm a, a, I'm a person who studies fan interactions. But from time to time, I need to remember, remind people and myself as well that um, it's real people behind the idol personas and I am very protective of them not in the sense of like I'm gonna shoot for my favorite uh, but in the sense of like they I, I do not like it when their position is not ignored but like they work very hard to get to that place yeah they work really hard 
Yeah, and and some of them, um, it's there's a lot of thought and you know training and work and effort and time and energy. Um, so, so somebody like um, Taman, you know, his solo career has really been shaped by him. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, yeah, I agree with you. When I say that I I go through generations, I really go through like the the small groups as well. And I'm a huge fan of several groups that are not like the, the major players. And I was watching last year, there was the that reality show, uh, the Survival Wild Idol, and then there was the Origin right now. And in Wild Idol especially, there were lots of uh, contestants that had debuted before. Um, kids that were going to like their third, fourth attempt to debut. They had been in disbanded groups. And that's like, that's really exhausting when you think of someone like, I'm going to take Woods as an example, but then there's also, um, because Woods, he was in Unique, then he was supposed to go into X1. Yes. Oh, I'm still so sad about X1. They were such a great group. so frustrating for them i can't even think about that and the fact that he managed like to get his own career going i always try to support him not just because he lived in brazil brazilian fans are really attached to him (laughs) yeah but these kids are really persevering so like i I feel that it, it felt almost like a contradiction because you had an actual idol standing in front of you but everyone's just talking about the fans. You had clips showing the idols, but everyone's talking about the fans. And I know perhaps that was the the focus of the conversation. But why why are we always focusing? <laughs> no, that's that's a really good point. This is also something I've noticed. Um, and I, it's it's such a particularly K-pop in English, K-pop in the global sphere because you don't see this in other places not you don't see it in Japan you don't see it in Korea where there's just this lack of interest in the idols themselves and all this focus on the fans and cuz some of the questions that they you know that they were discussing yeah they were you know they're they're interesting but yeah again suho is right there <laughs> like why don't you want to know what it's yeah. like Um, and and there was also a lack of interest that I found fascinating in kind of um, you know to use a colloquialism but how the sausage is made because you also had the CJ E&M person right there Mm -hmm. and she had some interesting things when she was allowed to talk about them Um, one of the comments that she made that I thought was fascinating as she said that they launched KCON because they needed to drive business and advertisers to Mnet America. And 
these are the kinds of things that, you know, you suspect. Um, but to hear her say it, and then no one yeah. followed up. Nobody followed up on this because they were talking about, you know, uh, desire for solidarity grounded in a shared sense of joy in dynamite. I mean, come on. Like, <laughs> like literally, yes, who cares? That's not, so <laughs> when I started my research, that's literally the, the kind of stuff that I couldn't stand to read anymore. Because like, I couldn't stand reading anymore because um, <laughs> I told you that. People, the, the, a lot of believers who are K-pop fans, they seem to be really, they will say, tell you that, oh, because the music, it speaks to my soul. But the reason why they love that music that speaks to their soul and not the other music that speaks to their soul is because of the aesthetics. It's the product. The product is made for them to, to love it the way they do. So that's like these mechanics of what happens behind the business. People are... I don't know if people just don't want to, to to talk about these things because they take away the beautiful narrative part. Because especially then I I, I will refer back to what we we said about how academic fans, a lot of them seem to really feel like they need to justify what they're doing because it feels unworthy of an academic's this caller's attention. So they are always like, oh, but now yeah, because I like this. It's not because they're good looking. It's not because they're hot. Because there is the. Of course, it's because they're good looking. Like, you know what? The I was a, a, a K drama fan. Mm-hmm. I started to. I looked up BTS because I thought Jin looked a lot like a Korean drama actor. Like, you know, the, like I started. Then I I listened to to their songs and I like it to play them while I was like doing the dishes because. I was I was not having a good time and I needed songs to cheer me up. So like it was not a matter of it wasn't anything deep. There wasn't any love yourself thing. It was just because I like to shake. <laughs> <laughs> and and so like the product, there's it, it's pop. Pop is made to pop. Yeah. yeah. So it, do we have the appeal, the reason why people stay for a long time. You have the dreams of everyone, etc. But then when someone goes there and says, oh, we started KCOM because we needed to drive at different times. Ooh, wow, I think we're, we're getting way past the beautiful part. We're getting to the ugly side. Yeah, and they don't want to think about the ugly side. But if you're an academic, I feel like you should be thinking about the ugly side. But I, I also think that this is the big problem in k-pop studies um, bts studies is that because nobody wants to think about the ugly side um sort of the realities of business um have have been completely either ignored or sort of idea laundered idealized yeah fetishized even to an extent remember the the washington post incident with the the study on whether fans felt overwhelmed by the amount of merch released during the pandemic. Yes, yeah. yeah. That's a a prime example, you know why? Because I was very surprised because a lot of my friends um, in in the the academic community, people that I've met, they 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 tried to defend the girl as they should. And they caught so much heat. They caught so much heat that someone had to go into hiding. And it was very worrisome because it was a, a legitimate study, like for all, for all, by all standards, like it was a legitimate study. And if the studies are revealing things that no one wants to talk about, so we're simply going to, oh, I, but I don't agree, but like, what, 
cares? <laughs> yeah, it, but then, cares. yeah, like, and so then make your own study and try to select like select a sample, another sampling of people, and see how they how they react. Yeah. That's how science is done. But there's yeah, the and it just comes down to that these um, areas are not taken seriously. You know that that a bunch of academics could have an idol and an executive in front of them, and still be talking about the female gaze in soap operas. It just doesn't <laughs> like it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, but it it just shows that they're not taken seriously, and I think that um, it's very difficult to find English language materials um, that take k-pop seriously that take the business of k-pop seriously that take um sort of the idols and their product seriously um it's it's difficult if not impossible yes and i will say that so i i know some people in that are more like in let's say executive areas of the music industry but they're still extremely curious about k-pop they're very curious, Kara. That like people, they still want to know things, but it's very hard to do that because there is a, like they ask me like, can you point me to a source? I say no. Yeah, and there's, <laughs> there's no yeah, and so people wanting to understand that want to understand this because it is interesting that you know unless you learn Korean or you know I I use a, a lot of Japanese sources. Yes, um, but yeah, there's nothing out there because. I don't know all the reasons we just discussed I guess yeah Yeah. which is a shame because it you know I mean I know we can or I can be negative um about the the community around k-pop but I do really like k-pop a lot the um the idols and the um you know the the joy they give us um I'm you know sitting here surrounded by I've got um, a poster of Shiny and one of Winner, um, Beckyun, Super M, and Seventeen. You know, oh, and uh, Mino looking down on me. <laughs> yeah, uh, I love idols as well, but I just yeah, I can't, uh, dealing fans is really, really, really a difficult part of the the thing. But when one of the recently we had here in Brazil the thing with Anita. You must have heard her number one with Involver. was really we've got a couple of artists in brazil right now who are really trying to look at k-pop and trying to replicate a couple of things and she did that with Involver. like she got her number one on spotify and it was a bit it, it wasn't the same movement as k-pop um because she actually she appealed more to the um to the nationalism and like a lot of people they were streaming her song just because they wanted to see a brazilian artist but it was very clever on her end because like if in k-pop you you appeal to the fact that your fans they are everywhere and they want to to help you from afar she really appealed to the fact that her fans were mostly in brazil and they want to help her 
in the name of the country. People, people who didn't even like her a lot helped. Um, but then there's there's people trying to to look at the strategies. They did playlists. They've got a couple of people here and there. But still, then there's this other guy here in Brazil who's trying to make his own K-pop group, an idol group, and completely missing several key points as well. Again, because no one has the time to spare to to really take a look at it. And the people who do, what kind of work are they actually producing? Like, yeah, I don't know if people want that to, to get out at all. But from the perspective, I think, I think, I think they, it's they, too they, late. Does. Yeah, I, I think, think it's so. I think it's too late because one of the things I've noticed the last um, year or so um, is that Southeast Asia is catching up to Korea um, and sort of beating Korea at its own game um, in the content industry. So you have, um, there is a uh, Filipino boy band or that very much in the K-pop model. That oh, was, right. yes. They, they're really doing well. The they're doing very fantasy, right? well. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And they um, managed to beat BTS, I think, in some online poll. Um, and you also have in Thailand, you have um, sort of these Thai dramas mm-hmm. that are doing very well. And the, these sort of things that um, K-pop and K-pop fans are known for doing well or sort of the how you wave in markets, yeah, like um, the Philippines and Thailand, um, Japan, actually. And yeah, maybe even Brazil, too, where the... I think, you know, maybe they've expanded so much that the playbook is now being used by other countries um, with better understandings of the domestic markets mm-hmm. and having success. How how can how you compete? You know, I think that's what we're going to be seeing in the next few years. Mm-hmm. You know, what what are they going to do? Are they going to move to the metaverse and games? Is that the next frontier to keep fans? I, I don't know. I don't know what we'll see. I think that's a reasonable, reasonable point, and yeah, perhaps that's the the, the next step. But I I hope not. <laughs> I'm a bit of a, a, a metaverse anti, but it's just like I'm still. It's not unsure, but like I think that the technology is still not seamless enough, you know, for the. But it takes a while. Like when you think of I know QR codes, that it took a while for them to really get into people's idea of using the internet but now they're everywhere and it's like when they got into the cameras right but yeah i think but then it, that's the the f- funny thing or the odd thing i'll say about um studying idol industry as a whole i think that usually when you're on the inside you do have a much better chance of getting a good perspective um, and I really think that when people do that from the outside, there's always something missing, I think. Um, so you really need to, to try to, to dig a bit deeper into. So when you look at these new artists that are coming up, like in other markets, they really, how they, like this finding of the, the, the like I said, the playbook, they, it took a while for them to actually get to a point where they could do what they're doing. And so, because it's really, it's, it's, uh, there are so many layers and so many things happen all the time. Like, it's not simply putting out a, a group of artists with a song and now uh, we're going to 
give a positive message because BTS <laughs> became successful with a positive message. Like that's not that's not it. Like it's a very it's a huge ecosystem. So you need to nurture. You need to nurture if you want to. Really, the nurturing of the ecosystem is the real asset at play there. sort of body of knowledge that has been built up by these academics sort of citing each other um, or journalists that are writing these very personal narratives and presenting it as a fact. I, I think, you know, the danger, of course, is that in a few years, people are going to look back on all of this and see that it was nonsense in the, the you know, the record and just ignore it and move on like it never happened. And well, that's a very personal thing to me. I think <laughs> because one of the the one of the things that I'm because of I I did so much I studied so much about like the the untold stories of like groups that had very short runs or there's a group that I'm very particularly attached to, which is Boyfriend, which was from Starship, and they they were kind of like late second generation. And I really like Boyfriend, and they were pretty much erased from the narrative of K-pop, um, especially because, well, Starship debuted Monster X, and they have very different concepts, right? You, we, which we can, anyone, if you hear that the group was called Boyfriend, can probably imagine that they are very different from a group called Monster X, right? And they were pretty much erased. Then you have also another group that I love so much, which is Infinite. And Infinite was the act, actually the first non-Big 3 group to get really big to compete with Big 3 groups. Infinite, they even got to the point of winning like group uh, group of the year at MoMA in 2013. So that's a, that's a huge deal. They're like, but because BTS came and did that afterwards as well. So Infinite kind of ended up being raised. And also the fact that um, SM acquired Lin and they, they merged and it was a yeah. mess. Yeah. So, so we've got all of these things that happen, but because so much happened in, within such like short period of time, so much ended up being erased, and new fans they come in and they dominate the conversation, and they have no idea of what happened before. So I'm very sensitive about that, and I that's something. It's a personal, not concern, but like it's a very personal thing to me too. When there are people who are concerned with keeping stories alive. And just like talking about the groups that no one's talking anymore and, and think, talking about the songs that 
they were erased very quickly because no one was talking about them. Like, and then tradition plays a, a huge role because the reason why no one forgets Shiny or Super Junior, for example, is because you you have like shallows. A lot of entities are shallows. They're well, all talking about that. Yeah, and again, I think that was sort of the genius of Super M. Not to to go, to go back to Super M, but. I, I think Super yeah, M. Supporters. Yeah, I think Super M was an attempt to get the you know XOLs and Shawls to um, take an interest or have a stake in NCT, and I think it worked. I really do think it worked. Um, it worked on me, you know that's for sure. And um, yeah, and um, yeah, I think you're right, and I think you know, this is really one of the things that has really come to be missing from K-pop in today, that it, it wasn't always like this. And, um, you know, in in um, sort of J-pop and in J- Japanese pop culture in general, there's a real sort of um, sense of continuity. And in Johnny's, which I know very well, the junior groups are always covering senior group songs. And so you can have a group of trainees um you know maybe 18 19 20 uh regularly singing songs from you know 2000 or the late 90s or even earlier um and these are kind of timeless songs that all the groups have sung um and that sense of sort of continuity and of Mm. remembering the the years past and sort of where where we came from and where we're going so that we have a baseline like you can say we're different because we know what we're different from whereas Mm -hmm. yeah in in k-pop you know those sort of end of the year gaios and stuff i feel like especially well especially again with bts fans who you know they actively encourage people not to to part partake um, not not part- the only watch when mm. BTS comes up. Yeah, and so you don't, you know, um, I feel like most BTS fans, if they know anything, they may know uh, Perfect Man because BTS covered it. But, mm-hmm. I mean, um, yeah, like I, I feel like that, that, that sense of, um, you know, covering senior songs and... Mm-hmm knowing that we we know where we're going because we know where we came from uh-huh yeah well sm has been really doing trying to do that they've done a, such a good job year. yeah especially yeah. with like dreams come true is my favorite k-pop song ever i cannot say that i loved espa's version but i love that it happened like just the fact that espa's version happened was something that was very I liked it a lot, even though I still prefer the original. But, <laughs> but one of this is one of the downsides, I think, of having like the group that is dominating. Like realistically speaking, no one's anywhere near BTS's level right now in sales and anything. But um, the group that really did that was well, NCT sold a lot, but NCT is a special case. But um, but like the group that achieved all these things that seemed impossible just a couple of years ago it's a group from an agency that had didn't have a, a long tradition um and i really feel that i am not i don't i don't mean to endorse another producer but like 
Bon P D. He has produced a lot of K-pop songs, and from time to time, he still makes reference to that. And I feel that it's his own way of like reminding people that he's been doing this for a while as well. But um, like my favorite K-pop song ever, one of the I have a top three. One is Dreams Come True, and the other one is like the first time by Tiara, and it's a song that was produced by Bang <laughs> PD. So what can I do about that? There's nothing I can do about because he's been like, um, he's been doing this, so he's, yeah. he's he's left a mark before. But then you had the fact that his company was much newer when the when BTS exploded, and that. Um, for a while, the Beyond K-pop narrative served them really well, but now we, we are at this crossroads, and that's one of the downsides of a group that came from a small agency making it. I'm not saying downside in the sense of like it's a bad thing, but it's a thing that it's going to take a while for that, that sense to be rebuilt. We've talked a lot about this, but you, you told me that I'm not that familiar with Japanese Idol story, but that there was like a, I think in the 80s when idols were just like, it was 80s or 90s when it was like the dark age of, of idols. Uh, yeah, there was an idol, uh, like an ice age. And yeah. when And this was, yes, and this was right before um, SMAP. So SMAP, when they, they were, I mean, I think there's never going to be a group as big as SMAP ever again. SMAP were the biggest idols. They're still massive celebrities, even in their 50s. They came from Johnny's, and this was before Johnny's was such a huge company. But when they debuted, um, people really, there was no demand for them. There was no, there was no real demand for, for idols. So they had to make their own place in the industry mm -hmm. and they did this by going on uh, comedy shows and becoming sort of comedians and um they kind of created their own boom after that afterwards mm -hmm. but yeah yeah it was like the early 90s like this is a a, a season that has mm -hmm. to happen mm -hmm. oh you might think that oh there are so many groups that i love right now and that they sadly they will not reach their full potential because this is a very specific time in the timeline of k-pop transition transitions are always difficult right so i we can say that oh this group could have done so much more but there's always that that taste of like what could have been this could have been so much better i think axel for example is a group that they they didn't give their full potential um during like before enlistment i think there was still so much more that they could have given as performers as artists um, but the realities of a group are really hard for grown-ups. So I, it's really hard to, to see a group really keep going as a, a complete piece after enlistment at their big ages. Yeah. But this is going to be like the transition time. And it's unfortunate that, that um, so, so many great people came out at this time. But at the same time, it's, it's inevitable. Yeah. It's a cycle. Yeah, you're right. And it's, you know, to every season. Turn, turn, turn. Um, <laughs> yeah and you know because they're I mean that's also just part of life and I think you know part of being an idol fan is accepting that um, you know sometimes it just doesn't work out um, sometimes really talented people don't succeed sometimes really good people don't succeed sometimes really terrible people make a lot of money and you know like I used to really love there was a group uh, Boys Republic <laughs> 
that I think debuted the same year as BTS, actually. Uh, and I really liked them when they came out. Um, and they've, you know, disbanded. I mean, it's just, that's just what happens. They just didn't yeah. catch on for whatever reason. But the, the other, the nice thing about being an idol fan is that there's always something new on the horizon and maybe I think you're right I think it is going to be a little bit of a fallow time for uh, k-pop and k-pop groups but um on the plus side over in Japan there's a lot of good stuff happening (laughs) right a lot of k-pop inspired stuff a lot of k-pop exactly like um there's a great group called be first that yeah I'm very fond of, and another one called Milk that are coming both up. Both of them? Yeah. Yeah, I, I hope, as long as there's good music coming out, I'm happy. But I do, I, I am very sensitive about, like, s- s- sad stories. Um, so I've got, like, a couple of groups that I really like that were really popular back in the day, and now they're not as popular. I always try to support my favorite members, like, to make sure that... They still have a job, even though they're not in their bright early twenties anymore. Um, that's a that's a thing that I'm really sensitive about. Maybe we could say I think. Do you remember back when we we had just met and TXT had just debuted and um, our a lot of army in our circles just hated TXT a lot because of like. Oh yes, but the the image was that they were leeches taking BTS's money. I think yeah. was the, sort of the underlying argument, and you still yeah. hear that. You actually still hear that from armies sometimes. But that, you hear that from like you hear. Uh, I I have heard that from like God Seven fans when they were complaining about Straight Kids. I've heard that. Yes, from, yeah. They used to to say that. Oh, but our position. We are like this because we are completely against the cyclical aspect of K-pop. They're trying to position themselves like this. Oh, we are against the cyclical aspect of K-pop and we don't want to support that. And I I never disliked TXT, if I'm being honest. I always liked them. Yeah, <laughs> they're they're- really I, I bought their first um, CD because I, I enjoyed it. It's still good. I think it's a great, I, I agree. It's I a great debut. It really is. But I, I never disliked TXT in that sense. So they would say that all oh, they are leeching and K-pop is about the passing. And yeah, sadly, that's the truth. But like, your, even your our faith's future, it really depends on the fact that the industry keeps going. So entertainment sucks. What can we say? Yeah, I mean, it's it's like sports. It's like anything, you know, it's um, there's a season and, you know, you enjoy it while it's there and you, you know, you just enjoy it while it's there. I guess I don't know what else to say. It's not meant to last forever. It's no, it's not. It's, you know, it's pop culture. It's um, sort of mass culture. And, you know, what what can last forever is, you know, your love of the songs and the I mean, it's it's a joke, but. You know the friends you make along the way. I mean, <laughs> God, it's not a joke. <laughs> you know, it's the truth, of course. It is the truth. You know, I would, I would, I would definitely skip the traumatic parts, but at the same time, I think that um, it's been really worthwhile this far. And yeah, that's the point. Like, even as an academic fan, I really need to subject my knowledge to, 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 to. Uh, like just uh, 
to, to theory, to science, to everything. But at the same time, the, the emotional aspects, they still play a huge part. And even the fact that I want to keep doing this, that I'm curious about the, the, the outcome, like, how is this going to look like in 10 years? I really want to, like, what is it going to look like? I really want to know. I'm not going to, I intend to, to stick around to see. Yeah, well, I think the the area of research that you've picked of sort of looking at fan spaces and the architecture of fan spaces is one that, that for K-pop anyway, has not been explored enough. So I, I hope uh, you continue in your work, and I really wish you all the best. Yeah, thank you. Yay. <laughs> well, um, should we go out with uh, a good song? I don't know what's... How about we go with some shiny? Let's go with so amazing. All right. It's at my brand, shiny. I love shiny. It's my oh, dream. I, I really, really love it's my so dream amazing. to see them live. So amazing, such a good song. I love it so much. Such a sweet, lovely song. Shiny really are such a good group. Yeah, I think I always tell people when they ask me like about perfect groups, it's always shiny, fix and seventy. I think seventy. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, 